This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of tibial eminence fracture from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. A tibial eminence fracture, also known as a tibial spine fracture, is an intraarticular fracture of the bony attachment of the ACL on the tibia that is most commonly seen in children from ages 8 to 14 years old during athletic activity. Diagnosis can be confirmed with radiographs of the knee. MRI studies can be helpful for determining associated ligamentous-slash-meniscal damage. Treatment is closed reduction and casting, or open reduction and fixation, depending on the degree of displacement and success of closed reduction. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, 2-5% of knee injuries with effusion in the pediatric population are secondary to tibial eminence fractures. In terms of demographics, tibial eminence fractures are most common in ages 8 to 14 years old. Moving on to etiology, the pathophysiology of a tibial eminence fracture is secondary to a traumatic mechanism like rapid deceleration or hyperextension slash rotation of the knee as seen in sports, the same mechanism that would cause an ACL tear in an adult, or a fall from a bike or motorcycle which typically results in hyperextension. Associated conditions that occur in approximately 40% of tibial eminence fractures include meniscal injury, collateral ligament injury, capsular damage, and osteochondral fracture. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about osteology and the ligaments. As far as osteology, the tibial eminence is a non-articular portion of the tibia between the medial and lateral tibial plateau. It consists of two spines, where the ACL attaches to the medial spine. The ACL insertion is 9 mm posterior to the intermeniscal ligament and adjacent to the anterior horns of the meniscus. The PCL does not attach to the tibial spines. As far as pediatric-specific osteology, remember that the intercondylar eminence is incompletely ossified and is more prone to failure than ligamentous structures. Failure occurs through the deep cancellous bone, and fracture is usually confined to the intercondylar eminence, but it may propagate to the tibial plateau, and keep in mind that medial fractures are the most common. As far as ligaments, the relevant one to know is the anterior cruciate ligament, which inserts 10 to 14 millimeters behind the anterior border of the tibia and extends to the medial and lateral tibial eminence. Now let's talk about the classification of tibial eminence fractures, and the one to know is the modified Myers and McKeever classification, which is divided into four types. Type 1, type 2, type 3, type 3 plus, and type 4. Type 1 corresponds to a non-displaced tibial eminence fracture, which is defined as less than 3 mm of displacement. Type 2 corresponds to a minimally displaced fracture with an intact posterior hinge. Type 3 corresponds to a completely displaced fracture. Type 3 plus corresponds to a type 3 fracture with rotation. And type 4 corresponds to a completely displaced, rotated, and comminuted tibial eminence fracture. Moving on to the presentation of tibial eminence fractures, symptoms include severe swelling and pain in the knee, as well as inability to bear weight. On physical exam, inspection may reveal immediate knee effusion due to hemarthrosis, and the knee is usually in a flexed position. As far as range of motion assessment, this is often limited secondary to pain. However, once pain is controlled, lack of motion may indicate meniscal pathology, as well as a displaced-slash-entrapped fracture fragment. These patients will also typically have a positive anterior drawer test. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, intracondylar, and oblique view. The lateral view is the most useful for determining fracture displacement. The oblique is helpful in determining the extent of tibial plateau involvement. A CT scan is useful for preoperative planning and is used when fracture displacement cannot be determined by plain radiographs. 
Finally, an MRI is better at determining associated ligamentous-slash-meniscal damage than CT or radiographs. Keep in mind that the majority of fractures show no additional internal derangement like meniscus injuries. However, remember that 15-37% to 37% of cases have associated intraarticular pathology. Now, let's talk about the treatment of tibial eminence fractures, which can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes close reduction, aspiration of hemarthrosis, and immobilization in full extension. Indications include non-displaced type 1 and reducible type 2 fractures. We'll go over the reduction technique in a moment. As far as immobilization after non-operative management, you will cast these patients in extension for 3-4 to four weeks. Keep in mind that patients get extremely stiff with prolonged immobilization, and therefore casting for only 3-4 to four weeks allows for a gradual rehab program. Operative options include ORIF versus an all-arthroscopic fixation. This is indicated for type 3 or type 2 fractures that cannot be reduced. Type 2 fractures may fail to reduce due to the entrapped medial meniscus, entrapped intermeniscal ligament, or the pull of the lateral meniscus attachment. Other indications for operative intervention includes a block to extension. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with closed reduction, an aspiration can be performed when a tense hemarthrosis is present, and keep in mind that needle aspiration with the injection of lidocaine may help extend the knee. As far as reduction, you will extend the knee to full extension or hyperextension to observe for a fragment reduction. As far as immobilization, the cast is placed at zero degrees of flexion and then cast in an extension for three to four weeks. As far as confirmation, a lateral radiograph should be obtained to confirm reduction and then serial radiograph should be obtained to observe for the maintenance of reduction. A CT or MRI may be used when the adequacy of reduction is unclear. Moving on to arthroscopic fixation, the approach will use standard arthroscopic portals. As far as the technique, let's talk about reduction and fracture fixation. With respect to reduction, first you will debride the fracture and then disengage the entrapped meniscus or intermeniscal ligament. Keep in mind that medial meniscus entrapment is the most common. Finally, you will reduce the fracture. As far as fracture fixation, you can use suture fixation or screw fixation. As far as suture fixation, keep in mind that large avulsed fragments may be repaired directly. Smaller avulsed fragments, usually in an older patient, may require sutures through the base of the ACL. The pros of suture fixation is there is minimal damage to the physis, and growth at the level of the physis will disrupt non-absorbable sutures to allow for continued growth. Cons of suture fixation is that it's technically demanding. Moving on to screw fixation, pros include that this is less demanding than suture fixation, and screw fixation also possibly allows for earlier mobilization. The cons of screw fixation is that it requires a larger osteochondral fragment, there may be hardware irritation, it's not possible for small, comminuted fragments, there may be impingement from an improperly placed screw, there may be risk of iatrogenic comminution, it requires removal only if malpositioned, and there may be physeal damage. As far as postoperative care, you will immobilize these patients with a cast and extension for 7 to 10 days and repeat radiographs to ensure that there is no displacement. This is variable as some surgeons allow for immediate range of motion. Postoperative care should also include early controlled range of motion and keep in mind that the length of limited weight bearing is controversial. Finally, in terms of open fixation, these follow the same principles as arthroscopic fixation. Now, let's talk about some complications of tibial eminence fractures. Specifically, we'll go over loss of motion, arthrofibrosis, growth arrest, and ACL laxity. Loss of motion is very common, especially loss of extension, and this may be due to a displaced fragment impinging on the femoral notch. Arthrofibrosis is more common with surgical reconstruction. Growth arrest may be from iatrogenic injury during surgery. 
Finally, in terms of ACL laxity, the incidence is 38 to 100% and is more common in operatively treated knees. Lachman's laxity may be noted compared to the contralateral limb, however, functional instability is uncommon. Finally, keep in mind that rate of ACL reconstruction following this injury is 15 to 25%. As far as prognosis of tibial eminence fractures, the overall prognosis is good with 85% of patients returning to prior level of sport. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 14-year-old gymnast presents after a fall from a balance beam with a hyperextension injury to her left knee. She could ambulate with pain but was unable to continue exercise due to pain. On examination, she has a swollen knee with painful range of motion. AP and lateral x-rays of the knee demonstrate a moderately displaced tibial spine fracture in a scalarly immature patient, which corresponds to a Myers and McKeever type 2. Treatment should consist of, and the choices are 1, immediate weight bearing as tolerated with a hinged knee brace 0 to 90 degrees, 2, transficeal ACL reconstruction with a hamstring autograft, 3, ficeal sparing ACL reconstruction with hamstring autograft, 4. Application of a long leg cast following successful fluoroscopic close reduction. And 5. Application of a long leg cast for 1 to 2 weeks would transition to a hinged knee brace, 0 to 90 degrees, progressive weight bearing, and physical therapy for quadricep strengthening. The correct answer to this question is 4. Application of a long leg cast following successful fluoroscopic close reduction. So the patient has a mild to moderately displaced tibial eminence fracture, which can be treated with close reduction, casting, and supportive care, provided successful close reduction is achieved. To quickly review, tibial eminence fractures are rare but occur more often in pediatric populations, often in the setting of sports-related injuries. Debate continues over operative versus non-operative treatment, as well as fixation type, that is screw versus suture, for openly treated fractures. Past evidence suggested closed treatment was adequate, but there has been an increase in operative management. Closed treatment is suggested for minimally displaced fractures, that is type 1 and reducible type 2 fractures, and open treatment for completely displaced fractures, such as non-reducible type 2 and type 3 injuries. Wolfinger et al. provide the results of a closed reduction protocol at their institution, including 38 patients with long-term follow-up. All patients underwent aspiration and close reduction in the OR under fluoroscopic guidance, followed by long leg casting in hyperextension and graduated weight bearing over weeks. No patients complained of persistent pain, swelling, giving way, or disability at follow-up. However, Edmonds et al., in a retrospective review, compare open reduction internal fixation, arthroscopic-assisted internal fixation, and close reduction with casting for pediatric patients with displaced tibial spine fractures. They report improved reduction but also increased arthrofibrosis in ORIF and arthroscopic-assisted internal fixation groups compared to closed reduction and casting, but of the 24% of patients with long-term follow-up results, there was no difference in functional outcomes across all three groups. There was a 17% rate of later operation for the closed reduction and casting group patients. They suggest closed treatment for fractures with less than 5 mm of displacement, otherwise ORIF or arthroscopic-assisted internal fixation. Gans et al. conducted a systematic review focused on the questions of open versus closed reduction and screw versus suture fixation. The 26-article review found insufficient evidence to have any clear recommendations. They did find reduced laxity and improved range of motion for minimally displaced fractures that had an open reduction and that completely displaced fractures treated non-operatively had higher rates of non-union. 
To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, immediate weight bearing as tolerated with a hinge knee brace 0 to 90 degrees is incorrect as immediate weight bearing is not recommended for fracture healing. Answer 2, transficeal ACL reconstruction with hamstring autograft, and answer 3, ficeal sparing ACL reconstruction with hamstring autograft are both incorrect as ACL reconstruction is not indicated for this tibial spine fracture. And finally, answer 5, application of long leg casting for 1 to 2 weeks with transition to a hinge knee brace 0 to 9 degrees and then progressive weight bearing and physical therapy for quadricep strengthening is incorrect as 1 to 2 weeks is insufficient for cast immobilization in a non-operative treatment protocol before transitioning to a hinge knee brace and physical therapy. And moving on to the final question, a 7-year-old boy falls off a bicycle and injures his knee. His injury radiograph shows a partially displaced tibial eminence fracture. Examination under procedural sedation reveals a positive Lachman test. He has a negative posterior drawer test and no evidence of instability to varus and valgus stress. A successful close reduction is performed, and a lateral radiograph of the same knee shows an anatomically reduced tibial eminence fracture. What is the most appropriate next line of treatment? And the choices are 1. Unlocked hinge knee brace. 2. Immobilization in near full extension with frequent monitoring. 3. Arthroscopic internal fixation. 4. Arthroscopic internal fixation and ACL reconstruction. And 5. Arthroscopic fragment excision and ACL reconstruction. The correct answer to this question is 2. Immobilization in near full extension with frequent monitoring. So the clinical presentation and imaging are consistent with tibial eminence fractures and successful reduction. Immobilization in near full extension would be the most appropriate next treatment. To quickly review, tibial eminence fractures occur especially in skeletally immature persons as a result of failure of the incompletely ossified tibial eminence prior to rupture of the ACL. Non-surgical management with immobilization is reserved for non-displaced fractures or after successful close reduction. Frequent and close radiographic monitoring is important to allow for intervention if the fracture displaces. Fractures with residual displacement after close reduction require surgical intervention to remove interposed tissue, such as meniscus or intermeniscal ligament. Myers et al. divide tibial eminence fractures into three types. One, non-displaced, two, minimally displaced with intact posterior hinge, and three, completely displaced. Authors recommended non-surgical treatment for type 1 and type 2 fractures. LaFrance et al. review the clinical presentation, radiologic findings, and treatment in pediatric tibial eminence fractures. They state that when successful close reduction is achieved, type 2 fractures can be managed non-surgically. Moreover, the authors state that most fractures heal successfully and do not typically result in subjective knee instability. Reconstruction of the ACL is rarely necessary. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, unlocked hinge knee brace is incorrect as the fracture should be immobilized for 4-6 to six weeks, after which a hinge knee brace and rehabilitation is prescribed. Answer 3, arthroscopic internal fixation is incorrect as when successful close reduction is achieved, the fractures can be managed non-surgically with close monitoring. Fractures that were initially reduced that go on to late displacement can be treated with reduction and internal fixation. Answer 4. Arthroscopic internal fixation and ACL reconstruction is incorrect as the ACL is stronger than the bones in children resulting in tibial spine avulsion fracture while the ligament itself remains intact. Despite pre-fracture ACL mid-substance attenuation, ACL reconstruction is rarely required. Finally, answer 5, arthroscopic fragment excision and ACL reconstruction is incorrect as it would be inappropriate to excise the fragment which is attached to the ACL. That's all for this review about tibial eminence fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. 
This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.